Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Barbara P., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, February 5th. Today we're reading from the big book. We're at page one Bill, in Bill's story, first paragraph, War Fever Ran High, and ending with, um, let's see, ending with, and again turned toward alcohol. Today's readers are Susan G. on the 12 Steps, Tanya P. on our 12 Traditions, Harlan G. is reading our text, Rick J. is going to be reading our closing, and Kathy S. is backing us up this morning. We have Jessica C. as our newcomer greeter, Ann A. as our host, and then we'll have announcements right after that. So stand by for those. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of, oh, I'm sorry, I forget to give you the reference number. Reference number for yesterday, Sunday, February 4th, is 21099, 21099. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I'll now ask Susan G. to read our 12 steps. Good morning, Susan G. in Tennessee, a recovered compulsive overeater. The 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you.
Thank you. Susan G. from Tennessee. Tanya P., would you step up and read our 12 traditions? Good morning. This is Tanya P., recovered in Michigan. And here are the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in manners, matters except in, I'm sorry, Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contribution. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for allowing me to do service. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Tanya P. from Michigan. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions uh, um, for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we're discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing is or be directed oh, sorry, we can't read this morning that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We're sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. And today we will resume our study of the big book, and that is on page one, paragraph one of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll ask Carlin G. from Arizona to get us started. Thank you very much, Barbara. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for your service. Thanks for taking the meeting. I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, as indeed I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. 
and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime, with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Notice it says, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. It didn't say I was very thirsty <clears throat> excuse me, and needed a drink. So as we see from that last sentence, this is 1918. Bill has just married Lois in early uh, in in November of uh, of 1918, and this he's going to be assigned overseas. This is World War One. Bill is a very very smart child. He is a very precocious child. When he was a little boy, the Edison test was given by Thomas Edison for young boys to test their acumen in math and science. They could apprentice with him. He passes but never does go to work for Edison. He is a very determined child. He finds, after the divorce of his mother and father when he's 10 years old in 1906, which shattered him and, and Dorothy. Dorothy is his little sister. It shatters them, this divorce. Uh, he goes to live with Grandma and Grandpa Griffith. And he will find a violin up in the attic, and he will practice this violin tirelessly, and he will become first chair of the of the uh, orchestra at the Burr and Burton Seminary, which is where he goes to school. He will also find a baseball glove up there, and he will work and work and work and become the shortstop for the baseball team. And one of the members of the baseball team is going to be a guy by the name of Edwin Ebby Thatcher, who we're going to talk about later on. Not today, but we're going to talk about him later on. Before meeting Lois and before falling in love with Lois, the love of his life was Bertha Bamford. And Bertha had to go to New York. Bill is born and raised in East Dorset, Vermont. Bertha is from Manchester, Vermont, which is right across. As was, And she goes to New York for what was described to Bill as a very routine surgery. And she dies on the operating table, and as a teenager, Bill will fall into the first of his lifelong depressions. And throughout his life, he will suffer from depression and anxiety and an extreme inferiority complex. Bill Wilson's story is going to begin here, and for the next 16 pages, we are going to look at the life of Bill Wilson. The first eight pages are about his plunge into the nadir of his alcoholism, and the second eight pages is how a recovery was affected therefrom by actions that he will run into in something called the Oxford Group Movement. And we are challenged to look at Bill's story, not just as a biography of someone that we'll never meet, do we think the way Bill thinks? Do we eat the way Bill drinks? And if we do, then we will identify in as someone 
who is at home in this program. Do we think the way Bill thinks? Do we eat the way Bill drinks? And we will look at the progression of this disease as we go through the first eight pages. We will look at not only the physical allergy taking over, but the mental twist taking over, but we will also look, as I said, at the progression of the disease in this story. Tom Uzzle, who edited the book, moved this story from the back of the book, where it was to head the story section, to the front part of the book so that we could identify in. And he chopped it in half. He cut almost half the story down uh, so that we could identify in with it. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. This is the first salvo that we get that Bill's solution to his problem was alcohol, not the problem itself. Thanks, Barbara. And with that, I will pass. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting us started. Harlan G. from Arizona. All right, so we'll start to take a list of names to go ahead with sharing. We'll have three-minute shares. And I would ask that anyone who, um, you know, although we value your experience, we ask that you um, limit your shares to every uh, third day, so in order that lots of us might share. So I'll go ahead and take some names. First paragraph in Bill's story. Who would like to share? Ann P. Tanya D. And Tanya. And Melissa. Melissa mm-hmm. C. Melissa, gotcha. Tony B. Tony B. Okay, so far I've heard Anne, Anne P, Tonya P. Gotcha, Jessica. I'll put you on the list. So Anne, Tanya, Melissa, Tony, Jessica, S. Who did I miss? Lisa C. Lisa C. Rick, Greg. Let's stop. Okay, Rick, I'll put you on the list. Let's stop there, and uh, we'll have plenty of time for more names after that. But let's start off with Ann P., followed by Tanya. And Tanya, I think you're Tanya P., but you'll correct me when you step up. Ann P., go right ahead. Three minutes. Hi, I'm Ann P. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm from Maryland. And I can relate so much to this. This is what uh, that sense of loneliness of emptiness uh, is what I have experienced most of my life and tried to fill with food. And it's only when I am connected to my higher power, when I'm connected to God, that I'm able to um, get to not feel that. And it has made such a difference for me. I've been struggling with abstinence for a long time, and it's only when I have really embraced this that I have to lean on God that I have um, become abstinent. And with that, I'll pass. Well, thanks so much. Ann P. from Maryland. Tanya, Tanya P., you're up. Hi, this is actually Tanya D., as in dog, uh, from Illinois. Um, Great, thank you. Recovered. Yep, uh, recovered compulsive overeater. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, this, uh, you know, what jumps out at me is also the contrast between in the midst of excitement, I, uh, you know, discovered liquor. So uh, kind of celebrating with alcohol. Uh, and then the, at the end of the paragraph, you know, the loneliness and fixing that with alcohol and, 
you know, to me that kind of reminds me that I really turn to food for everything. Um, no matter, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, I only want to eat on days that end with a Y. Um, and I didn't, when I came into program, I didn't actually like relate to um, eating over feelings. I was like, well, I don't feel like I do that. And um, it was partly because I was just doing it, you know, preemptively. Um, and uh, I was totally powerless to uh, to stop. Um, and, you know, I think this is also the stage of Bill's drinking where the drinking is working, you know, and there was a time when, when the food worked for me, when I, I didn't, it didn't cause me problems. Like, when, you know, when I was a child, I was like just happy to be using it and it fixed, you know, my, my problem. Um, but then as we'll read in uh, Bill's story, like if we're really um, – a compulsive overeater, um, there is a point to where it, it, you know, there's a quote that says it uh, ceases to be a luxury and becomes a necessity. And I certainly crossed over in that, into that point because, you know, normal people can also uh, use food when they're lonely, but for them, it doesn't take over. And for them, it doesn't become, you know, everything because like I said, um, at some point, it really didn't matter what I was feeling. It could be anything. I would just just pick up the food, um, you know, because I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, and uh, thanks. Well, that all just pass. Great. Thanks so much, Tanya D. from Illinois. Melissa C., you're up, and you're followed by Tony B. Good morning, Barbara. Thanks so much for your service this morning. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And, you know, when I when I hear this paragraph and I read, you know, this paragraph, um, yeah, it, it, for me, it, it, it brings to mind that circumstances have nothing to do with my eating, you know, because I've eaten in the best of times, you know, when everything is wonderful like Bill, you know, I, I'll eat. And, um, and when I'm lonely, I'll eat, you know, so it's not, yeah, if I think about it, like, you know, a flow chart, like all arrows bring me right back to the food. Um, and that's been, that's been my entire life. And, you know, the other thing that grabbed me here is that he, despite the warning of, of, you know, his people, despite the prejudices that his, you know, and, and that his family had against alcohol and, and, um, I, I do had that experience. You know, I grew up, um, my mother was extraordinarily disciplined about her eating in a, in a, not in a sick way, I don't believe, but in a healthy, disciplined way. You know, she, she believed in exercise and feeding us healthy food with a balance of when to eat junk and when not. And, um, and I had my father's side of the family that was morbidly obese. They all died of obesity. Every one of them, my father's siblings, died of of severe chronic obesity. Where, um, and my parents would point them out to me as as the warning, as a cautionary tale. Like, don't let yourself get like that. Don't eat that way. Don't do that. And and yet, no warning. Like nothing. I feel like. You know, I there was a time I would love to have looked back at my parents and assigned blame. You know, thank God for an inventory that helps you find out the real problem is you. But my parents did nothing wrong. I was a train. I think this disease was a, rain, a train rolling down the track. And um, it wouldn't matter how much they warned me. Um, 
you know, I'm just grateful today that there is a solution for someone like me that all arrows no longer point to food. And um, thanks for that, I'll pass. Thanks, Melissa C. from New York. Tony B., you're up, and you'll be followed by Jessica S. Thank you very much. Yes, my name's Tony B., and I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater living in, in Scotland. And, um, yes, thank you very much, Harlan, for your introduction there. And, um, yeah, it got me thinking. Um, I'd say 7 to 12 years old, I was eating hard. Um, and then at 13 to 25, I um, life took off for me. And it was because alcohol parties came in. Um, I was in a youth choir, and that was so exciting with all these young people. I was beginning to feel like I belonged. I had my first boyfriend. There were definitely hilarious moments. Um, he was very funny, a lot of sort of pranks and all that kind of thing with, with the group. And, yeah, I, I, I got together with him age 15, and at age 17, um, he broke up with me. And I went into a serious depression, um, mental health issues. I got married at 25, and um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't happy in, in the marriage. I think I hadn't still got over my first love really, and I let it go with the food. So food came back into my life, and um, I I just began to to eat, and um, I'd say that. 25 to 49, I was there with the, with the, you know, carrying on thing. So um, I relate to this. I relate to this life taking off at last. Um, ego, um, feeling like I was super important, and then this crash that happened to me, and uh, a loneliness settling in, and turning to food. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to share that experience of mine as it related a little to Bill's. And um, with that, I'll share the time. Thank you. Ah, thanks, Tony B. from Scotland. Uh, Jessica S., and let me just remind everybody where we are. We're on page one, Bill's story, very first paragraph, reading that one paragraph only. So war fever ran high. Uh, Jessica S., you're up, and you'll be followed by Lisa C., Yes, this is Jessica S., a grateful, compulsive overeater from Ohio. Yeah, I can definitely um, relate to this uh, paragraph. Um, I remember, um, you know, being get together and it can where um, we would celebrate, you know, whether it be a birthday or whether it be like a graduation or just the holidays. And I remember just massive amount of food. And I remember that's where I really discovered food was like a um I think they call it like a social um a social thing and I remember that and every time I would um have such feeling it didn't matter what it was whether it was lonely or or tired or whatever the emotion was, I remember turning back to it but before I was able to kinda of like take it or leave it alone. Like, you know, someone um uh bullied me at school or I would um uh, receiving an award at school, I would never turn into food. And, you know, in, in, at that time, you know, again, I could take it or leave it alone. And then all of a sudden, food started to become um, an important part of my life. All of a sudden, I started to use the, the coping mechanism. And then eventually, 
it started to become um, even something more where I, all of a sudden I'm turning to food and I'm turning away from my peers. And eventually food became the one thing that I could, you know, talk to. But then I believe it's then um, the 12 and 12 where it becomes a rapacious creditor. So I can relate to all the things that um, Bill uh, mentioned in this story. You know, again, I turned, um, I was very lonely and I turned, and I once turned to alcohol, or in my case, I turned to food. And, you know, as we, um, as we continue to read Bill's story, we, we begin to see the um, his constant descendant to alcoholism, which is the same way it was for me you know, you know, ego and pride and just wanting to uh, be like everyone else. And, you know, I, I would constantly, even though I knew that food was an addiction, you know, I constantly have relapses, you know, because it's like I don't, I'm trying to prove to myself, hey, I can take it and leave it alone just like the the next person can. I can eat that slice of pumpkin pie and not um, have the food control me. But guess what? I can't, you know, because I uh, I abused it. I blocked that purpose to um, to use food as as something to um, to cope with or something to calm me down with. Instead, I have to use, you know, the spiritual um, direction that we're gonna eventually learn. Um, and I, that's just a snippet of what I was just um, thinking of. Anyway, I'll pass. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Jessica S. from Ohio. Lisa C., you're up. You'll be followed by Rick J., and then we'll be taking another list of names. Hi, good morning. This is Lisa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Um, this this paragraph, uh, you know, the first time I read the book, I really did not, I, I felt kind of lost. I'm like, okay, you know, I was like picturing like some like, um, I wasn't picturing World War One. I. I was picturing some like, you know, World War Two, nineteen forty, like love scene, like the kiss, the famous photograph in New York City. I'm like, oh, war, war fever, like this is exciting. Um, you know, but now like when I look at it, I, I really I see so many different things and I see myself uh in this paragraph really tremendously. And one of the ways is um you know, it this is like a coming of age story, right? It's like um and I remember as a child feeling so powerless so much of the time. And then as I, you know, um, and, and food, of course, did give me a sense of control and power from a very young age. Um, unlike alcohol, you know, there, there was no, uh, there was no wait time there. You know, that that's from like, <laughs> as soon as I started being able to put anything into my mouth. Um, but, you know, um, th- this, this idea that I was part of life at last, right? Like this way in which, um, becoming a young adult and for me not really knowing how to handle any adult responsibilities and how to handle life on life's terms which is like the ongoing you know theme of my life of course um but uh you know this this turning to other things looking for solutions um i see myself in this paragraph so much um and i and i really you know i i was looking to come of age. I was looking to arrive somewhere to something, to be something or someone. I, I really, you know, um, I was always waiting to, to discover that I was like worthy. Um, 
and uh, you know, food was a major distraction to that goal um, because it, 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 it created so many additional problems. Um, and so, you know, I think that the strong warnings and prejudices of my people as well, you know, I will say that um, I really, um, I, I don't think I got enough warnings about, about the food and it wouldn't have mattered if I did, um, you know, uh, and, but I did get a lot of warnings about alcohol. So I was very afraid of becoming an alcoholic because I have two recovered parents and um, I didn't grow up around it. Um, and so what's interesting is the ways in which throughout my life I've been able to say, oh, well, you know, I never had that problem or I never had this problem. And I could just be blind to my food problem for a really long time. Um, and so, I, I mean, I'll just say that, um, you know, um, I, I see I see the, the sincerity of Bill in this paragraph now and this um, desire to share the truth and tell the truth. Um, and I'm just so excited for, you know, continuing reading it in the, in the weeks to come. Thanks for letting me share. I'll pass. Thanks, Lisa C. from New Jersey. And Rick J., you're up. And then we'll take another list of names. Hey, thanks for your service, Barbara. My name is Rick J. I'm a recovered compulsive every year. I live in Cary, North Carolina. And, uh, yeah, thanks for kicking us off, Harlan. That was beautiful. And, you know, I, uh, I love the story of of Bill. Um, you know, he he's ex- um, sharing his experience, strength, and hope with us. And you know, when uh, the doctor's opinion, we learn all about the problem. And now we're going to get to to go on this beautiful adventure, you know, of the solution. For me, um, I I really relate to that last sentence too. I was very lonely, and again, turned to alcohol. You know, but why? You know, um, now I I also happen to be an alcoholic, and and um, I've I have this book I bought a long time ago called Pass It On. It's it's Bill's story, and um, you know, there's a, a scene in there. You know, he sets the stage of this first drink. You know, he's getting ready to head off to, to Europe. You know, it's World War One, and a lot's going on, and he takes this drink. And in in his words and out of the book, so I took it and another one. And then lo the miracle, that strange barrier that it existed between me and all men and women seemed to instantly go down. I felt that I belonged where I was, belonged to life. I belonged to the universe. I was a part of things at last. Oh, the magic of those first three or four drinks. I became the life of the party. You know, that's what happened to me, and long before I took my first drink of alcohol, I took my first compulsive bite, and that's where the magic happened for me. And although, you know, like I took a bite, I took another bite, so the physical allergy, you know, my my brain, you know, the chemistry in it immediately had more of it. I had to have more, but what happened was that that miracle, you know, that miracle of – all of a sudden, that connection, everything that was keeping me out of that flow of life, like for me, the, the flow of life was just right there like a river, standing on the bank, looking at people, living their lives and never feeling a part of. And all of a sudden, when I was eating, I felt this connection. I felt the release of everything in me 
that was preventing me from joining in to life. I felt that connection. And despite feeling sick from overeating, I, uh, I wanted that effect again. So when I was lonely in my life, so when I was feeling emotional disturbance, I again turned to food. Why? Because I was chasing the magic. But I was already in the grip of that mental obsession, which would trigger the physical allergy as soon as I took that first bite. You know, so I was doomed. I was beyond human aid. And we see Bill is going to spiral down into incredible darkness. But his darkest past, his Time. darkest moments, shines his brightest light for us all. And that's the gift that we can share for others. With that, I pass. Well, thanks, Rick J. from North Carolina. Okay, so who else would like to share on this paragraph? And just a reminder, although we value your experience, we ask that you limit your share to every third day in order that others might share their experience too. And I've got you, Katie and Wanda. Anayeta. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I've got Katie, Wanda, and Vasa. That is where I stopped. You go right ahead. Kaniyeta. Kaniyeta. Margaret D. Georgia. Margaret D. Please B. Please C. And I'm. I didn't hear the other name. C. Please B. Got you, Lise. Okay, let me tell you who I have. Judy, Judy K. Let me tell you who I have, and I think I think we'll have time for everybody, but we'll have to we'll have to go speedy. So, Katie G, Wanda R, Vasa O, Hanietta, Margaret D, Lise D, and Judy K. So, Katie, you are up. Hey, good morning. Sorry for my nerves stepping all over your toes. This is Katie G, recovered and. Boston, thanks for taking the meeting. Um, you know, for me, my my food addiction started way or way before I took the first bite. Right? I this book has taught me what the nature of my disease is, and my disease is um, alcoholism. And I just replace food because it's the easiest to understand this way. So when I my first memories are not of binging and starving, my first memories of being are of being physically uncomfortable in my skin. It hurt to be in my skin. I felt like I should be somebody else doing something else with some other people at, at some other time. Like it did not feel safe to be in my skin. And what I really relate to is that food and starving and binging and purging it took away the thinking that separates me from everybody else. And so I didn't have to think about what you were thinking. I didn't have, I'm a please love me a holic, right? I, I, I felt like I could be in my skin and nobody in my mind was telling me what a piece of poop I was, right? And I could, and I could show up and I could be with the people that I thought I needed to be with to be okay, right? But the thing is, um, what happens to me is that only lasts for a certain amount of time. And then my thinking gets so bad that eating, that dieting, that starving, that binging and purging is a step up from my thinking. And so then the cycle begins again and I'm very lonely and I once again returned to food, right? And um, 
my parents too, they, they gave me a lot of warnings about food, right? They, they said, you know, if you wear those jeans and you buy clothes that, um, that fit you, you're never going to, you're never going to have the ability to overeat and put on weight and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, both my parents continue to suffer from this illness, but it, it didn't matter. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a low bottom compulsive eater no matter what, but it also didn't help, right? Like I I believed the lies that um, I needed to exercise in order to eat and be okay. And today I just want to say to you, like I'm recovered today, but I also still need to look at the ways that I try to be part of life. I go outside. And when I go outside of myself, I go without. That is why I have a step 10 and I know we're on step one. But I just want you to know, if you're not recovered, please know that when we get to a, a, a day that we can say we're recovered for today, remember, it's just for today, right? And I am an addict. I will be an addict the rest of my life. And God willing, I will stay close to God. But when I forget who I am and I go out, I go without. This is about getting a relationship with God. And I'm glad to continue with all of you today. Great. Thanks, Katie T. from Massachusetts. Wanda R., you're up for three minutes. Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone has a great day. Wow. You know, starting off with the first page of Bill's story, the first paragraph, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I just want to say I started overeating to continue a cycle of punishing myself uh, so that I could uh, escape, uh, you know, life. I wanted to uh, enjoy myself like I saw everybody else doing, uh, you know, and I would shudder shudder myself in my room with my stash and, you know, just uh, start to overread so that uh, I didn't have to feel. I did not want to feel what was happening. And uh, I was unable to get out of that cycle until I got to the 12 steps. And the 12 steps helped to clear up my thinking. And uh, I had a thinking problem, a making a decision problem. Uh, I I wanted to stop, uh, but I couldn't make a decision about how to do that. And uh, the 12 steps uh, helped me to uh, get out of the cycle of uh, not being able to uh, enjoy life any other way, you know, uh, uh, and enjoy and join other people and uh, be start to uh, feel good. You know, I really wasn't feeling good in life. And uh, I wanted just to run away, to escape, uh, you know, I I was unable to uh, practice uh, love. And now, um, because I have the 12 steps, the help of my sponsors, you know, I practice love. I practice 
trying to enjoy every day, trying to uh, be the best person I can be and to make corrections when I do something wrong without blaming myself, shaming myself, uh, and putting myself down. You know, so uh, the steps are incredibly important in my life. The big book teaches me that. The big book, uh, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you. No, no need to apologize. Right on time, Wanda. Good. Thanks so much, Vasa. Oh, you are up, followed by Hanietta. Yes. Thank you so much. Please time me when it's my time. And I believe it's Barbara. It is. Thank you so much for leading the meeting and everybody's service this morning. And I'm Vasa, grateful, grateful, recovered, compulsive reader calling from Port Charlotte, Florida. And uh, the person brought me to the program told me just to have an open mind, you know, coming in the program, because with everything I did, it not work. When it came to the food addiction, and I didn't even know it was called food addiction, or I had a disease, I was so grateful to find out at least what was wrong. I mean, I've been trying to control the food for years, but I didn't know it was a disease. I mean, eating, uh, starving, I've used some bulimia, running, anorexia. I did it all, to, to, you know, everything I heard of other people doing, and none of it worked till I my sponsor gave me this book, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, why are you giving me this? I'm not an alcoholic. And she said, just cross alcohol and put food on the top. And I love Bill's story. You know, I mean, I didn't go to as much as he did go, you know, but I can relate with so much, you know, and then coming and hearing other people's stories. But I I just wanted, I wanted to find out what these people did to recover. I was so eager. So I found what the problem was, and then in the doctor's opinion, you know, what the solution is. I had no clue about the allergy of the body. I had no understanding about not with the food, a lot, a lot of stuff. But my food addiction didn't kick in until I was 15 years old, and I came in recovery 41 years old. And I'm not ashamed to, to admit I am 78 years old, and I'm just so grateful. I feel like I have a new life since I came in program. I was dying gradually, you know, with this, this disease, you know, in every area, physically, emotionally, spiritually, without even knowing. And I'd be looking for the answer. Believe me, it's not like I didn't look. And, you know, there's a lot of there's alcoholism in my family. There was drug addiction, compulsive overeating my mom. It killed her, the disease. And I remember telling us, please don't eat. Look at what's done to me, you know. But she didn't have program. The doctors would tell her, you know, you can't eat, you know, it's going to kill you. And she tried to stop. And finally, she did develop all kinds of problems. She died from she died from heart attack, you know, died uh, obesity and all. And she, believe me, she tried everything she could. And I remember we told her, you got to listen to the doctors. Well, I was, you know, my doctors told me, you know, if you don't take this under Fine. control... Thank you so much. It's going to kill you. 
I am so grateful, and I love the stories. I wanted to know, and I was eager, and I was thirsty to know about the recovery, and I'm grateful I've stayed all these years. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thanks, Fasa O. And Hanietta, you're up. You'll be followed by Margaret D. For anyone who's coming in, it is we are on page one of Bill's story in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, War Fever Ran High. Okay, Hanietta, it's all yours. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for your service. And when I heard, I came on just a little, like a couple of minutes before you said, and today we are on page, uh, chapter one, page one. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so wonderful. Um, to be reading this, I, when I came in just this last time, um, we we were in the doctor's opinion. Oh no, the forewords. So I just feel so blessed that I got to start right at the beginning. Um, uh, I want to also thank um, Harlan because I now have like this foundation of what his life was like before that poem and that day, you know, that he got drunk. Um, I don't know. It makes me feel closer to Bill. And uh, so I want to thank you for that. And also I want to... um, that you know, I just the, the, for, I used to think that this whole thing was just about this poem, this poem that he that he um, rejected. You know, didn't didn't uh, he ignored the signs? Well, I ignored the signs. I ignored the fact that at an early age, like around twenty something, <clears throat> had started with uh, diabetes and high blood pressure, and you know, I ignored that. I just and, and to me, that's such ego. You know, I'm just, when I ignore signs like that, it's like I'm invincible. You know, it can't hurt me. Oh, it's nothing. You know, that's what I would say. It's just nothing. And um, so, um, believe it or not, I get so nervous when I share. Um, Okay. But I also can relate to the lonely and the, you know, just not really feeling like, I belonged and not being good enough and not enough, just those types of feelings all the time. And, uh, and when I was, when I was young, my, uh, where I go to services, they had liquor all over the tables and I had already started compulsively eating, but these little shots, they just look so cute that I just, you know, I'd go over there and take a shot or two, you know, and so nobody would see me. But, uh, and then I'd go to the, the food table. So my life had always been intertwined with both. And I just relate so much to Bill's story, and I can't wait till we get even going further. So with that, I pass. Thank you again for letting me share. And everybody have a wonderful day. Great. Thanks, Connie. At, uh, and Margaret D., you are up. Followed by Lise D. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Margaret D. I'm in Georgia. And um, listening to this just opens up such a world for me. Um, And I want to thank everybody who contributes in any way that they do, whether they call in and they don't share and they listen, but maybe... You know, two weeks later, something will hit them and they'll share or whatever. Um, but to get back to the 
to the paragraph, one of the biggest things that I can see in retrospect now about my or about the disease of compulsive eating is the delusion and the denial that go hand in hand. And those two things end up so crippling and so um I don't know what the word is, um, absolutely making it impossible to progress in any kind of a spiritual way. Um, as, the, as the disease got larger in my life, as it blossomed, so to speak, it's almost like I had fewer and fewer um, strategies to get away from the delusion and the denial because the um, the thinking had taken over as well as the allergy of the body. And one thing that I can really identify with in in Bill's story is that um, at the point where he said, you know, the, the loneliness overcame him, he was not in any different um position than he was before he took that drink. He still had the same family relatives. He still was in the same unit in his, um, you know, in the army or whatever branch it was that he was in. All of these things were, were, there was no difference. And yet at some particular point, his brain told him, this is really bad. And you are on the outside. And and I, I think that maybe in the beginning when I first started reading this story, that was when the truth broke through to him, you know, of what was actually going on with him. But I think maybe at that point, that's when the disease really broke in and said, no, you're all alone and no, you don't have... You don't have a connection, and and this is not uh, in a horrible place. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Margaret D. from Georgia. Lise D., you are up, and you'll be followed by Judy K. If you can, about two and a half minutes each, and we can get both of you. Lise D., One more shout out for Lise D, and then we'll go to Judy K. If not, so Judy. Hi, Lise D from Quebec. Yeah. Hi, Lise. Uh, after what I heard and what's been read, I can see now, yes, wanting to recapture. And not even knowing um, that's what I'm doing, wanting to recapture the the effect of a joyous gathering around the table. Like if I can remember my parents, uh, the only time being together, the only time attention directed to us children was uh, for good um, grades at the quarterly bulletin school and 
splurging on Chinese food, the effect. I can see now wanting to recapture. What I didn't know was that also the food was doing, the overeating was doing an effect to me that it was not doing uh, to the others. And also when my cats, they, they've been fed, but they come to me, meow, meow. First thing that comes to mind, like, is like uh, wanting to feed them, but that's not what they want, but maybe that's what they think they want. It's not what they want, really. They want attention. They want a pet, or I look at them and talk to them. Um, so I pass, and thank you for listening. Thanks so much, Lise D. Uh, Judy K., you are up. Hi, everyone. This is Julie K. Um, from Ridgefield, yes, Connecticut. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, I, that I'm struck by is that, for me, food was a great isolator and a great excuse. Um, you see, because the more I ate, the heavier I got. And the heavier I got, the more I could tell myself that if people didn't like me, it had nothing to do with me. It was my weight. And that became a real shield and a real excuse and a real way for me to not take a look at myself and who I was bringing to every situation. Um, and one of the greatest gifts that this program has given me is taking that excuse away and being forced to really examine who I am, um, how I speak, my tone, my attitude, and it has not necessarily been a pleasant discovery, you know, but I've leaned very heavily on um, the isolation of my, that my fatness has brought. Um, I have allowed myself to feel victimized when I haven't been. Um, I've just been a victim of my disease and of myself. Um, and this program has lifted that veil and has allowed me to become a person who enjoys social situations, not because of food, um, and who doesn't make excuses for either not being invited someplace or just not being liked. Listen, I'm not for everyone, and everyone is not for me, but that was a very hard lesson to learn, and as a kid, or, and a young adult, really, you know, that would, the thought of you not liking me because I'm fat would lead me right back into the um, in a vicious cycle of I'm fat, I have no friends, so I'm going to go eat and get more fat and have fewer friends. But that wasn't really the issue, was it? Um, and so I'm just very grateful for this program and for all of you with that I pass. Oh, thanks so much. Julie Kay from Connecticut. All righty. So we are at the end of our time. Um, I want to thank everyone who shared. And please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. The ID for this meeting, should you want to go back and listen, is 21100, 21,100. So that is today, um, February 5th. We'll now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And we've asked Rick J. to read our closing, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only through Keep You Until Then.
Thank you, Barbara. My name is Rick J, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.